had goats for kicks. My dad actually liked to do stuff like that. You know, he actually he got the goats to kill them so he could eat them. <laughs> but we ended up keeping them for quite a while. And he had rabbits. What he did is he, he got some rabbits and he traded some rabbits for these three little goats. And there were two weathers and a little doe. And there were stripes, Jackie, and Pinky. <laughs> but anyway. Became they, hard to eat, stripes, Jackie, and Pinky, huh? Well, I guess Pinky. I think Pinky got traded off for something else. But Jacks and Stripes, they ended up being tamales. <laughs> My mom is from Central America, and she made tamales out of them. And I swore I'd never eat any, but I did, and they were really good. <laughs> <laughs> when goats, and I had their cart, I had their rugs for years. Mm. Then I later traded the rugs for some pigeons to my cousin, which I kind of regretted. <laughs> for pigeons, <laughs> pigeons, yeah. This is real food, handmade by people who love what they do. This is cheese by hand. cheese by hand, we take you to Three Ring Farm, also known as River's Edge Chev, to talk with the owner and cheesemaker, Pat Morford. Right, just throw yourself on a sword. (laughs) It's it's just, you know, and that whole thing about the sustainability of it, I think that, you know, we're in debt. We're in debt up up to our eyeballs at this point, and it's going to take some pretty good shoveling to get back out. We've never been in debt before. You know, we've always lived very modestly, and and my energy levels are not what they used to be. If I could have gotten started 20 years ago and been 10 years into it, you know, I would have been smooth sailing. But as it is now, starting at my age, it's a little more difficult. I need more help, consequently. Throwing yourself on a sword seems a much more accurate analogy to me than the descriptions most people come up with for getting into the cheese business. And right out of the gate, Pat is touching a nerve with this idea of sustainability, sort of illuminating the reality that small farms and small production foods live in our minds as sustainable. But when you actually look at the cost of building the infrastructure of a small dairy or creamery, they are incredibly, if not prohibitively high. And we won't even go into the hard manual labor that then comes once you get into day-to-day operations. Unfortunately, the cachectomies don't stop once your place is built and your equipment is installed. Okay, I'll tell you the facts of life. I go through 12 tons of hay every two months. That's $2,500. I go through 3,000 pounds of grain every two and a half weeks. That's two and a half weeks. Every two and a half to three weeks, I'm going through 3,000 pounds of grain. It's a custom-made grain that's based on really good stuff. It's got dehydrated pumpkin and pumpkin seeds. I mean, it's really wonderful stuff so that the goats have the nutrition to produce good milk. And that's $508. And the price is going up all the time because of fuel. You know, we go through seven tons of straw so that we have nice bedding for the animals to be in every year. You know, it's just my milkers, I have to have some help milking. That's expensive. I mean, every bit of it's expensive. And when I look at it, you know, just a pat, just the little container that the cheese is in is 25 cents. The label is 10 cents. You know, it all, it all mounts up. So I even wonder, am I making any money? (laughs) 
Or, you know, we've had moments where after you hear everything, you kind of go, like, I can't believe you saw for the price you did. Right. Right. If you actually, right. If you actually were to, to charge, I mean, it's just like milk, cow's milk out there. Cow's milk should be a minimum of $5 a gallon. It's insane. But see, they have all those price supports and all the commodity issues. In a big cow dairy, they usually buy their, their, their grain as commodities. It's like by the train car load. And they get it set in at a price for three years. I know this because I was on the Willamette board and I talked with the dairy farmers all the time. You know, the dairy farmers that were on the board were really, really friendly to me and really guided me as much as they could. But for a small producer like we are, there's no way that we're going to get commodity pricing on anything. Where would you put it? What would you do with it? So now that we've explored a good amount of the hardship that comes with starting a cheese business, we are faced again with the burning question. If this business is so challenging, why on earth would anyone sign on to do it? Here's Pat's explanation. I've always had goats for milk. Always for milk. Because I believe in it, right, for our own family's use. The kids were all raised on goat's milk, all of them. And... We were raised on fresh cow's milk because we always lived someplace where you could get fresh cow's milk. I just believe in fresh products, you know. Milk is good for you. When we got here, I insisted that we keep the goats to five because I didn't want to get too big. But I was working at the Sylvia Beach Hotel cooking at night, and George was at home because he's a commercial fisherman. He's home part of the time. He was at home talking on the phone to different goat people buying goats. (laughs) He thought that we could raise calves, heifer replacements for dairy farmers on the goat's milk, and then he could keep me at home. (laughs) But it's the only way that you can really make any any kind of livelihood with goats is to do something real with the milk. You're not going to raise calves and do it or anything else. So anyway, he was busy buying all these goats while I was saying, you know, we need to keep five goats, that's it. I don't want to get a whole bunch of goats. And, you know, I came home and he had purchased like 27 goats, which we weeded through because they weren't all very good goats, you know, so I, we ended up keeping three out of the 27. Yeah. <laughs> Take George off the buying. Right, right. I know. He's just like. <laughs> if you will, take away the credit card. Right, oh. right. <laughs> it was pretty bad. But anyway, we ended up with some really good milking stock because that's the one thing that I do know is genetics for milk production because that was always my focus with dairy goats. I'd always had goats that milked real well. So Three Ring Farm is sitting pretty with a nice set of three strong milkers, thanks to George. But Pat has to go through a few more starts and stops to even get to the point where she can afford to build the creamery. I think it was 93 when we decided to, I decided that we needed to do something. And I thought we could do something really tiny and modest, but we couldn't get any funding. You can't, you can't get a loan. We own this place outright. But we could not get a loan because the house wasn't a turnkey operation. It was a shack. It was a comfortable little shack, but it was a shack. So we ended up kind of piddling along for a long time, and I was collecting up used equipment here and there. Whenever I could find any stainless, I bought it. And then it was about 2000 that I said, we've got to get this done because the fishing industry is, you know, falling around our ears. 
and we're not going to make a living. We're not going to make any kind of living. None. And I got a job at Fred Meyer's being a bread clerk, which is like, sounds so easy. It's like one of the very hardest jobs you can imagine. Yeah, it's like pumping 35 pounds over and over and over again. <laughs> it's like, yeah, moving big racks of bread, throwing them on the shelves as fast as you can. It's crazy. It's like the craziest job you could possibly imagine. Anyway, so I got a job. So we established um, credibility because being in the fishing industry, you have no credibility whatsoever. Self-employed in an iffy industry, you can't get a bank loan to save your soul. So I got a job at a regular place. We had insurance. We got a loan. We got a, con a construction loan because we could not get the loan to build a facility, even though we wanted a modest amount of money. So we got a construction loan to build a house with a washable first floor. That's what we did. I had never really given much thought to a bank's perspective on loaning money to an aspiring cheesemaker until a wise cheesemaker said to me, go ahead, walk into your local bank, tell them that you want to build a plant to make cheese. Better yet, tell them that you want to start a farm. And then, instead of selling the milk to someone else, you want to make cheese and see how much longer they let you sit in their office. And it clicked. People walking into the shops where I worked, being crazy for artisan cheese, did not translate in a banker's mind to a viable business with a reliable repayment of a loan. I wondered if part of the challenge that Pat was up against was that she was building a business that was not understood in the location where she was. Actually, the whole coast of Oregon was strong in dairies. There was a little creamery in virtually every little town along the coast. But somehow or another, they told the dairymen they couldn't raise cows in this area because it was timber. Toledo has a creamery. There was a creamery right here in Salette's. Every little town along the way has a creamery. The mailman who used to live next door to us when we lived up the river here just a little bit further, he collected the cream cans on his mail route. All along, you know, he said that people would have just a couple cans out by the mailbox and he'd pick them up. And that's gone now. Oh, it's been gone for quite a long time. I think that in Lincoln County, other than our dairy, there's only one other one, and that's the Ketolas. They have a cow dairy that sells to Tillamook, and they're up on the Siletz River or down on the Sluts River. Mm -hmm. But that's it for Lincoln County. I think that's kind of amazing. And there were lots of little dairies all over. Everybody had a few cows. Mm -hmm. So the Oregon coast sounds like it had creameries coming out of its ears. But where did all those creameries go? We asked Pat what she thought about the disappearance of those creameries. More specifically, if she thought that the government maybe should have done more to keep small production around or even to help resuscitate it in their area? I don't know. Maybe they shouldn't support the big farms so much. You know, I think that maybe it should be that they shouldn't support the big farms so much. If they're going to support the big farms, the oil industry, all the rest of that stuff, they should, I suppose, help small farmers more. It's like level the playing Yeah, field. yeah. I mean, if, if they've got... We have a friend who inherited a, a wheat farm up in Mead, Washington, which is by Spokane. They're paid to not grow wheat, and then they lease the property out to somebody who's growing like lentils or something else that's, you know, not on that list of not being grown. 
And so they make the money from the government to not grow their wheat, and then they make their money from leasing the land to somebody who's going to grow lentils. That doesn't make sense to me. And I know it's all about price supports and commodities and all of that. You know, they're going to keep enough wheat off the market so that they can keep the wheat prices up. But at the same time, they're importing wheat from Canada. They're importing wheat from other areas. You know, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the global economy of all of that stuff just doesn't make sense. Listening to Pat think through the supports in place for more industrial-level agriculture, it's almost instantly clear that the drivers in that business versus the drivers in her business are just completely not the same. Big agribusiness is all about efficiencies and on some level a detachment from the components. So land ceases to be called earth and soil and instead it becomes merely mm, a medium for the development of seeds to food. One could also argue that once you've got a dairy operation with 10,000 cows, they cease to be thought of as animals on some level. Instead, they're like a vehicle, something that requires X inputs to get Y output. The drivers in a business like Pat's would likely make a large-scale dairy farmer roll their eyes. Because in Pat's world, relationship ranks high. The reverence and connection are the first things we see when we look at her business. And she works from there to figure out the pricing and the economics. This is not to say that she's soft. And, and it's also not to say that the other farmers are hardened in some way. Rather that they really look through completely different lenses and ultimately are headed for different goals altogether. Manatee, Flutterby, Kazoo, and maybe one other, four other does that are just kind of loafers. They're old girls. And we have five bucks down there. Well, we, we believe six, in bedding with straw five, five and lots of it. You know, like I said, we go through seven tons a year of straw. And I think that having a lot of feed in front of them all the time and having the ability for them to go out back whenever they want to is a good thing. Granted, part of the day they, they lounge around in the loafing shed, but they go out back probably half a dozen times a day, and they range all over back there. You know, they're free to do whatever they want. And I do, I think that, that animal comfort's important. I think that they should be clipped in the summertime, their hair clipped, so that they're cooler, and it also helps with any kind of parasites, skin parasites that they might have, so that you don't have to use so many you know, like a rotenone dust. We usually use a rotenone dust, which is considered organic. And that's what I've always used for lice or anything because they're animals. They get stuff like that, you know. And as far as parasites go, we take care to worm them and then withhold the milk. But in our climate, all of those things are important because we're a wet, hot, humid climate. We don't freeze much here. So parasites are a consideration, and you have to take care of those things. Otherwise, you're going to have a dead animal. They will die from parasites. That's all there is to it. So you do have to stay on top of those sorts of things. And it just means that you have to do everything with some forethought. You know, the custom grain that we have mixed up has a lot of extra stuff in it. Plus, we have every kind of supplement I can think of for the animals to have free choice because we have too much rain. I mean, they can go out there and gobble that stuff all day long, but the nutritional level isn't there because the rainfall washes all the minerals away. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's an important aspect of animal husbandry is to 
make sure their nutritional needs are met. Otherwise, they just don't thrive. Pat understands that caring well for her goats means higher quality milk and ultimately a better product for her to sell. But her appreciation for these animals goes beyond the fact that they provide the foundation for her business. Spending every day with these animals has an impact on Pat and her family. And when I hear her talk about how they see their goats, I have to wonder if this kind of relationship to our food and where it comes from isn't what many of us want when we talk about sustainability. We normally have goats forever, and lots of the goats are so really a part of our family. You know, we have generations of animals out there. It's pretty gut-riching for us when we lose an animal. Like, I lost my grandkids' doe this year. They don't even know. You know, we lost her due to kidding problems. And it's like, God, how are we going to deal? And she was a doe that lived with us in the house for two weeks when she was born because she was a big girl and her head swelled up when she was being born. She lived with us for two weeks in the house. She went to OSU when we had the vet students out for their tour. She went back because in the process her, her jaw had gotten broken. So we were having a hard time feeding her. I had to tube feed her. She was at OSU with the students going to all their classes for three days. You know, I mean, this is, you know, a really special individual. So, you know, it's things like that that are really hard. They're really hard, and it's like, you can't even really come to grips with it. You know, it's, they're like a part of your family. You know, I mean, that's so hackneyed, but they really are. They're like a part of your family. You know, we have does out there who are generations and generations. We have Ernestine's daughter, who was our first nice doe that we bought from Harriet Partain, who became a really good friend of ours and later died from cancer. And You know, we've got representation of her all through our herd. You know, it's like, you know, their family. And it's really silly to say that on a lot of levels, but it's true. You know, they really mean a lot.